out, turn to um, the book of Luke. Uh, we return to our journey through the book of Luke today, the doctor's cure. Uh, last in that, but way back at Christmas. And uh, the title of my message today is A Christ Like You and Different. What's really intriguing in the, in the gospel accounts is how little information we have about Jesus um, after his birth until he begins his ministry, public ministry at 30 years of age. Um, in fact, essentially today, we're going to read about 30 verses, and that's going to cover from a, uh, age eight days until 12 years old. And it, it's kind of like having a Shutterfly book, you know, covering 12 years and there's only three, four photographs in it. It's just not all that satisfying. But there's some things in that section that um, to me have always pointed to Jesus, not only his deity, but his humanity. And so what we're going to do this morning is read through um, these 30 verses or so. And while I'm reading through, I'll stop occasionally and point out things that speak to, on the one hand, Jesus' ordinariness. In other words, his humanity, like you and me. And then some things that point to, no, there's... Um, he's beyond just us. And then when we're all done with that, I want to have us talk a little bit about uh, some scriptures that help, uh, help us see why it matters. Um, back in 451 AD, there was a council called uh, of the church in a place called Chalcedon, which today would be in the outskirts of Istanbul, Turkey. And there were almost 600 bishops who were streaming there from all over the, the empire uh, to have a discussion about something that had uh, become something of a problem in the church. It was a problem in a number of different ways. So what we're going to do to try to introduce this subject and that um, event is we're going to drop in on two of the bishops who would have been making their way from, let's say, Alexandria, Egypt to Chalcedon and try to find out what was the discussion was all about. So, um, Mikey, what, what's this uh, conference that we're going to uh, all about? What's the, what's the discussion going to be about? Well, we're going to talk about who Jesus was. What, what was his nature like? What was his nature like? What do you mean? What's his personality? What kind of habits he has? No, no, you know, there's been some controversy in the church about whether or not Jesus was just human. Was he just God? Was he kind of God and human, but they're, they're like two different people in one person? Oh, you mean that kind of nature? Well, I don't understand why that matters all that much anyway. Why do we have to spend all this time, all these days, talking about something that really is insignificant? That's really not as insignificant as you might think. Because as a matter of fact, if either one of those things was not true, you would still be in your sins. Still be in my sins? What do you mean? Well, you wouldn't be saved. I, I wouldn't be saved be simply because of who Jesus is, his nature. That's right. If he was only human, you couldn't be saved. If he was only God and divine, you couldn't be saved as well. And that is going to be the focus of our attention this morning. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 21, right after we pray together. Father God, um, when we have political upheaval and wars and rumors of wars, and people who are living in the streets 
and diseases that we sometimes don't even have names for, much less have remedies for. This may all seem like irrelevant theological wastewater. And so I, I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit's grace this morning, both for us to catch the significance of who Jesus was and the implications for us, to see how it makes a difference whether or not we have hope for both this life and the life to come. And I pray against the enemy who loves to downplay important things and says, get involved and consumed by minutia. Focus on who's going to win a three-hour athletic contest. Get consumed by that problem at work that may, may break or make your career. Uh, focus on things that are really fundamentally irrelevant in the big scheme of things. Do not, by all means, do not focus on what makes a difference for all eternity. And so I pray this morning that you would bind the enemy, that you would muzzle him, and that instead we would be able to hear from the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. So this is right after Jesus' birth. This is what we read about back at Christmas. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, and that presumably took place in Bethlehem, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel, even before he was conceived. And then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. And it's interesting, this is um, speaking about there as in Joseph and Mary's purification, which is the law of Moses said a woman who gave birth had to have um, a purification um, sacrifice and she had to wait 40 days after a son was born until she was considered pure again. And yet there's, for some reason, they're speaking about both husband and wife here. Really kind of fascinating. Now, just, just a, a note, when Jesus was circumcised, this is what happened to all Jewish baby boys. It wasn't a health consideration primarily. It was a religious consideration. This was the sign that God had given the people of Israel to be the sign of his covenant relationship with them. So this happened to every Jewish boy. And you think about that, the ordinariness of it all. Here was Jesus, the son of God who had created all things. And it's like he doesn't get a pass. He doesn't get a special exception. Uh, he's, he's treated the way any other Jewish boy is. Verse 23 uh, middle 22, sorry. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. And so they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, something so ordinary as a normal Jewish family have a firstborn boy, he is considered God's. He belongs to God. This was same, the same thing was true when it came to animals. Firstborn animal in a home, male animal, and the firstborn male child belonged to God. And so, for example, if you had a donkey and that was your firstborn 
animal in your, in your flocks, in your herds, you had a donkey, it was a male, you would break its neck. That was the way you showed that it belonged to the, the Lord. Now, if you needed that donkey for work or transportation, you could buy it back by giving a sheep as an offering instead or some, some other animal. But when it came to the sons, the boys, you would always buy them back. Of course, they didn't kill the boys, but it would you'd buy them back by an offering, and that's what's taking place here. Again, so ordinary. He's, the, he's not only Mary's son, firstborn son, he is the son of the Most High, as the angel told Mary. Yeah, he doesn't get a pass. He's just treated normal, ordinary human boy. Verse 25, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout, and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. And so when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and he praised God saying, can you just imagine these couples walking up the corridors of the temple and they have a little brand new baby in their arms and some total stranger comes up to them, grabs the baby out of their arms. I mean, there's no other indication that he made any introduction or explain why he wanted to take the child, but he takes him and then he praises God saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation. Now, all of a sudden, we shift from the ordinary to the exceptional, from the human to there's something more going on here than first meets the eye. Simeon is insisting that the Messiah that the Spirit had promised him he would see before he ended up on his deathbed, he has seen. That the salvation that God has promised that he would provide Israel, he has seen. He says, I've seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. Again, this is not at all in the realm of ordinary. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Now, let me stop there. To me, one of the most fascinating things about Jesus and his mother and dad, his mother especially, because Joseph appears to have died somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday and when he began his public ministry. There's a number of times in Scripture where Mary is portrayed as scratching her head about this son of hers, which seems odd in and of itself. After all, didn't she have a conversation with the angel Gabriel showed up one night and said, you're going to have this very special son. He's going to be put into your womb and you never had sex with a man. You're going to give birth to a child even though you've never been intimate with a man. And he is going to be called, remember what Gabriel said to her? He's going to be called son of the most high. Now, looking back for us, looking back at the cross and looking back at the New Testament, we go, oh, well, it certainly meant that he was going to be God come in the flesh. Mm, not for her and not for most people in Jesus' day. If you would have gone back and quizzed even Jesus' disciples and said, do you believe that Jesus is actually God? In the early days of the ministry, especially, they probably would have said, what? That's blasphemy. That was a growing understanding, growing understanding on the, their part, and especially there was a, 
uh, that was probably much more understood immediately after Jesus went back into heaven. But Mary, she cannot figure out what Simeon is saying about her son. It doesn't seem like big stuff to us knowing the New Testament, but it was an amazing thing to her. And we're going to find this throughout the gospel accounts. She sees something happen. She goes, I wonder what that's all about. One of my favorite passages about this issue is in Mark 3, 21, where Jesus is early in his public ministry. He and his disciples are talking with a lot of people. They're, they're talking about the kingdom of God. So many people have gathered around them. They're having so many discussions that it says they, didn't, they couldn't even eat. They couldn't even get away, break away to eat. And Luke links that, or Mark links that with this step. It says that Mary and her sons went to take charge of Jesus because they concluded he was out of his mind. Now, isn't that fascinating? You would think that Mary, having heard what she heard from Gabriel, would, would expect unusual things from her son, would expect unusual words from her son, would expect somebody like Simeon to say the things that Simeon said about her son. Yet it says, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. To me, that's in a picture of Jesus' normalcy, his humanity. You know, sometimes we think that Jesus didn't mess his diapers. He did. Sometimes we think he didn't get his mom up in the middle of the night to feed him. He did. That song that we sing at Christmas time, Away in the Manger, the second stanza says that uh, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus know what he makes. No crying he makes. You're like, of course he's crying. There was a time where Christians thought if we speak about Jesus as if he is human, it's, it's like to undermine who, who he is. Well, the Bible itself speaks about his humanity. Of course he cried. Of course, as he was four or five years old, he's playing with kids in the street. He, he's getting an education when he gets older. He's being taught the Torah by the, by the priests and the scribes and the rabbis. Jesus was a normal guy. He did normal chores that his parents gave him to do. Everything that you go through as a child, he went through as a child with the exception that you make your parents upset sometimes. He never did. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Again, another uh, pointing to Jesus something other than just human, or at least there's some exception about him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul, said that to Mary. This is the first time she has some dark words, some concern about where things might go with her son. Verse 36, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple, and she was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when, she had been married only seven, when they had been married only seven years, and then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. 
She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Again, another picture that Jesus is somebody exceptional. She's telling everybody, essentially, I've seen the one that we've been waiting for. God has promised a, a prophet like Moses. He's promised a king like David. He's promised a redeemer. He's going to provide a redeemer. I've seen him. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled, verse 39, all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee, and there the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Again, I think this is just a picture of normal humanity with the possible exception of the last part. Verse 41, fast forward 12 years. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the past Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. Now, lest you think that Jesus' parents were bad parents because they didn't know where their kid was. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, they, they might have been traveling with a group as large as 60 or 100 people. Friends, family members, relatives from Nazareth to Jerusalem, they would have traveled in a band, partly for protection, partly for good fellowship. Jesus is, after all, 12 years old. He's not four. And so they're not panicked. There's a group of guys he hangs out with, and they figure he's in the crowd somewhere, but he doesn't show up that night for the meal. They can't find him. And he went back, verse 45, couldn't find him. They went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him. <laughs> and can you imagine that, moms? Can you imagine not being able to find your kid for three days? They found him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I, I, I see both Jesus' humanity and his something more showing up in this verse. They were amazed because normal kids don't have this kind of insight, understanding, or even interest in spiritual things. And Jesus had it all. So on the one hand, they would have expected him to be just like a normal kid. They were surprised that he has all of this interest and understanding. On the other hand, the fact that he does says something larger about him. And his parents don't know what to think, verse 48. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. More of the implication that Jesus was just a normal child, a very ordinary they're confused by what he has to say. They're confused by the fact that he's even interested in hanging around with these old dusty rabbis. They're confused by the answers that he gave them. They're confused by the idea that this is where he should be. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. That's human or not. <laughs> And his mother stored up all these things in her heart. 
See, she's putting a piece of a puzzle at a time in her heart. There's a piece here. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Hmm. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and the days afterward, I think, is when everything began to fall into place for her. Verse 52, to me, this is the most profound testament to the fact that Jesus was simply a human being, not simply, but he was a human being as well. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. In other words, Jesus was not walking and talking in complete sentences at two months old. He walked like other normal kids when they learned to walk. He learned to talk at the same time they learned to talk as well. Um, he, he, was, he was doing the same kinds of things that they, other kids his age would be doing. He's growing and he's becoming bigger and stronger over time as a normal child would develop. He grew in wisdom and his, his mental acumen and understanding. All this was normal. Now, it's interesting, we talked about the Council of Chalcedon. The greatest threat to the church in those days uh, was that simply seeing Jesus as divine. I, I'm, I'm thinking that the greatest threat to the church today is seeing Jesus as just human. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is just take some scripture passages from, uh, from the New Testament that point out to us the, both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus and why both are necessary for you and I to be saved. And let me take you first to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 4. Now let me uh, have you imagine for a moment that you are out um, in some desolate part of the country. You're on a back road it's a moonless night. There are no farms around. There are no houses around. There's nothing around. And your, star, your car starts to clatter, and then it just dies, and you coast off the road. There's no place you can see to walk. Thankfully, you live in the era that you do, and you have a cell phone, and you can make a call. Who do you want to call? You want to call someone who both has the light and who knows how to fix cars. If you have someone who comes who has a light but doesn't know how to fix your car, you still have a problem. If you some, have someone who comes who knows how to fix your car but doesn't have a light, you still have a problem because he can't get under there and see what he needs to do to repair your car. You need somebody who has both the light and the ability to fix your car. And I contend that that is exactly what we got in Jesus, someone who brought the light but also knows how to fix the problems that we have, problem of sin. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, says something amazing about Jesus. As, can, can you imagine that, a, that God would be able to be tempted to sin? Uh, apart from what you know about the New Testament, the, the uh, like instinctive answer would be no. In fact, James 1.13 says God can't be tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. And yet here we have this amazing claim in verse 4, 15. This high priest, speaking about Christ, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings. That word can either be translated testings or temptations. He faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He did not sin. 
Now, only by being human could he be tempted, and only by being divine could he avoid succumbing to temptation and being defeated by sin. Both were absolutely necessary in this. Jesus had to be human in order to be tempted, but he had to be God in order to defeat the temptation and not sin. And then I love verse 16 because it's a, this wonderful reassurance to us that we have a God who understands. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And on Friday, I was talking to a lot of people who are going through some really devastating times in their lives. In the morning, I got a call from a woman who just discovered her father who's just a couple years older than I am been diagnosed with cancer just a couple hours later I'm talking with a brother who, whose mother unexpectedly had died that morning later in the afternoon Betty and I were at women's and babies uh, visiting with a brother and sister who'd just given birth to a precious little girl who has Down syndrome if you're in the intercessors network you know all this stuff Now, the reason that we can go to Jesus for help with these kinds of things is twofold. One, he's been there, done that. He's not just a God in heaven who is kind of um, out there, knows what we're going through theoretically, but he has walked on our dirty streets. He has wrestled with our dirty lives. He has encountered the disasters of our lives. And not only that, but when we go to him, because he's God, he has the power to make a difference in what we're going through, both to empathize with us and to change things. If he was only human, he could empathize with us, but he couldn't change anything. If he was only God, he could change things, but he couldn't empathize with us. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Only by being human could he be tempted, only by being God could he defeat the temptation of sin? Now, second thing, Hebrews chapter 10. Only by being human could he die for human beings. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says this. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why is that? And therefore, why in the world did the Jewish people in the Old Testament offer sheep and bulls and goats and all that? Why? Hebrews, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says that until Jesus came and died, God did not punish the sins that had been committed beforehand. And you think about that. All of the, it wasn't that God did not offer forgiveness to the Jews in the Old Testament, but the bulls and the goats and the sheep that were being slaughtered on a daily basis could not take care of the sins. And so it was like all the sins that Isaiah and Joshua and Moses and all the believers in the Old Testament committed were put in this, this bundle only to be satisfactorily taken care of by Jesus because a sheep is not a human being. A goat is not a human being. A turtle dove is not a human being. The sin sacrifice that was going to be adequate had to become like those that he was sacrificing his life for. 
And so Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, for example, says, therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says that Jesus bought us. He paid the purchase price. And that was a purchase price that could not have been paid unless he became a human being. And doesn't it make you wonder, like, God, why didn't you just call it off? Forget it. These people are not worth it. You just imagine sitting down with the son and having this discussion. I want you to do this. And, and the son saying, you want me to do what? Son, it matters. I love these people. John 1.18 says that Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. And he came to tell us and he came to show us that the Father loves us. Only by being human could Jesus die for humans. But only by being God could he take the weight of all human sin. Let me read 1 John 2.2 and then we're going to wrap up. Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Only by becoming human could Jesus die, pay the penalty for our sins, but only by being God could he pull that off. I had a sister in the church, uh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe eight or so, came up to me and she said, I have a book I want you to read. I get that sometimes. I kind of groan when I do because I have a whole shelf of books I'm reading. I'm usually running through about eight at the time. And I remember about a week later, she gave me a copy, and about a week later, I was just kind of thumbing through it, and I thought, ah, I think I'm going to start this now, and I, I read it the next two days. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me. How many of you have read that? Um, still, I've probably read several thousand books in my life, still is in the top five books I've ever read in my entire life. It's being made into a movie. It's going to be released this October. It's an amazing story. It's a story about a white, art, wealthy, white art dealer in Texas and a poor, homeless black man lived in the streets of Fort Worth and the art dealer's wife that brought them together. Turns out both of the, the art dealer and his wife, both professing believers, but he is cheating on her and uh, finally uh, owns up to it and uh, she makes a deal with him. She says, uh, I will forgive you and stay with you um, if you do whatever I want you to do. Now, I don't want man is bold enough to commit to that without having that all colored in and penciled in, but he agrees to do it. One of the things she wants him to do is to go down to the local mission in Fort Worth and volunteer his time with the homeless with her. And he agreed to do it. Wasn't happy about it, but he did it. Some point along the way, his wife had a dream one night. And she's telling him the next day about this dream. And she says, I, in it, I saw a wise, poor man who's going to change the city. So sometime later, there's a man in the mission who's got a baseball bat. He's breaking things up left and right. 
And this art dealer's wife pulls him aside. She says, we have to talk to this man. He said, why? She goes, he's the man in my dream. He's, he's the face I saw in my dream. She says, I want you to get to know him. I want you to befriend him. If you've read the book, you know the story that Ron Hall and Denver Moore did become uh, not just passing acquaintances, but good friends. Denver Moore moved in off the streets and ended up living with Ron after his wife passed away of cancer. And I watched a trailer this week of the movie, and uh, I hope they retain the essence of the book. You never know what that's going to look like, uh, especially when a major Hollywood label has a hold of it. But Ron goes out, follows Denver from the mission one day, and he follows him through the mean streets to the decrepit part of town, debris everywhere, bars on the windows of all the local shops. And he came to him, and he had conversation with him. He tells him he wants to be his friend. And I thought as I watched that what a picture that is of our Savior who was willing to come to our mean streets, walk past the debris of our lives to the dumpsters of sin that we spend our time diving in, to get through, work through our innate hostility and to show us and to tell us that God loves us. And here's a man who at his death had no family, he had no friends, he had no career, he had no money, he had no success, he had no defenders, he had no prospects, he had nothing. And yet, he gave everything for you and for me. He is, he was, he can be your savior. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. You either are his friend or can be. Let's pray together. Thanks, Lord, for Jesus. He's the only hope any of us have. Thanks for his faithfulness, being obedient to his Father, coming not to just to offer us a piece of salvation, but to pay the entire price. Not one thing we can do to add to the work that he did on the cross. Not one extra good deed nor extra bad deed. Uh, to avoid all, hated all on the cross. And did so because, was able to do so because he was both God and man. We recognize we live in a day and age in which Jesus is readily embraced by many as a good man, a good teacher, someone who came to show us how to live. Think of William Barclay, this Scottish pastor and professor in Glasgow the last century who, who's widely quoted and so forth, and yet he admits, I don't believe Jesus was God. And I just want to ask him, well, then, then how can you have a Savior? And then he goes on to say he doesn't really believe that he's a Savior, that he just came to show us how to live, and we'll get it figured out somewhere. Oh, God, what, a, what an abomination, what a... What a um, 
train wreck this idea is that Jesus is just human. We have no hope if he is. I'll never learn how to be good enough. I'll never learn how to be submissive enough. I'm so glad that he was both human and came for me and God enough to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and continue worshiping.